Welcome to Your Direction, a podcast dedicated to discussing the science of purpose. I am your co-host, Tony Burrow, and of course, I'm joined by your other co-host, Patrick Hill. Hi, Pat. Hey, Tony. Pat, are you aware that today we are in for a real treat? Insofar that we are joined by who must be the single most prolific guest we've had historically on the podcast and might ever have prospectively on the podcast. So we really need to make this count. Would you like to oh, do the honor of introducing well, I was going to say, you, you want to leave that to me to introduce the <laughs> yeah, Of course yes. I do. Of Jeez. course I do. Well, thanks, Tony, for <laughs> giving me both the challenge and the extreme honor to get to introduce today's guest, Dr. Andrew Fellini from UCLA. Professor Fellini is the head of the Adolescent Development Lab at UCLA and the co-executive director of the Center for the Developing Adolescent, which is an organization bringing together scholars across the nation to help us understand how to promote adolescent development. So we are extremely excited to get to talk with Andrew today about his work and his knowledge on how to help youth develop adaptively and positive youth development overall. And Andrew, we are going to start off with the question that we like to ask everybody. How did you get here? (laughs) How did you find this direction in your life? And why is this work important to you? Well, hey, Pat, hey, Tony. It's a real treat to be part of this. And thanks for the invitation. Mm -hmm. I'm really flattered to be part of this. Well, you know, it's a good question. And actually, the difficulty I have in answering the question, I think, has to do with purpose in some ways. And where does purpose come from? Does purpose drive you? Or does purpose come from your reflection upon all of the things that you've done? And do you learn your purpose from those things that you do and so on? And so what you're asking me to do is to sort of, in a way, think about how I came to do this kind of work. And what I'm doing is reflecting upon where I've come from and trying to sort of get a cohesive narrative as part of that. But it I think what it really comes down to is what I've always been interested in is relationships and belonging during adolescence. And I've looked at that in a variety of different kinds of ways. From graduate school onward, we've looked at questionnaires, interviews, we looked at brain development, we looked at biological markers of health, we've looked at a variety of different kinds of things, we've looked at how you get along with your friends, with your family, and how you help your family, and so on. But what it really boils down to, I think, is just this compelling interest in what does it take for you to belong, to be part of a group, to feel like you play an important role in that group, whether it be a small group like your family, a little bit larger group like your cultural group or your religious group, or even broader, such as your country, your society, and your world. And really what it boils down to many times, I think from our work and from others, we're very interested in what you do to help that group, to contribute to it. And so I think that's really what it comes down to is sort of belonging, being part of a group through contributing and figuring out how you can play a role. So interesting. This concept of belonging, it seems, has found its way into, I guess, the mainstream conversation. It shows up with questions and conversations about young people in schools or people in the workplace. Is your understanding of the literature and your work on belonging Do you think that resonates well with the sort of contemporary attention that belonging's getting? Do you think we're sort of asking the right questions or thinking about it the right way? Or does the literature sort of diverge from how the public tends to understand belonging? 
Well, that's a really great question. I mean, I think these days the literature and the public understanding concept actually dovetail pretty hmm. well. Okay. I think we really are reflecting these days a lot of, as a society upon the importance of feeling that you're part of it, that you mm-hmm. are heard, that you make a difference, and whether you're from a marginalized group or not. And I think that does resonate a lot with the science that's been done. There's a lot more being done now about the ways in which you can promote that belonging, how you can enhance that belonging, particularly for groups that have not been heard, who have been Mm -hmm. denied that sense of belonging. But I I think it's actually pretty good. I I think there's a lot of good consonants there. It's really interesting that it's come back in vogue. Yeah. It was big 20, 25 years ago. When I went to grad school, I was a student of Jackie Eccles, and it was really about the transition to middle school and what does it take for middle school students to succeed. And a lot of it had to do with whether or not you felt like you belonged. And the take that she took and the lab took was a lot of that had to do with whether or not you felt that you had a say in what was going on in your classroom. And as you went into middle school, that was important. So it's really interesting to see it come back into play. And I think some of the discussions about belonging these days also don't just stop as at saying, well, you just need to tell someone they belong. You need to give them a way that they can belong, that they can mm-hmm. contribute, that they can have a say and they can be recognized. See, Pat, there's hope for you that phrenology and calligraphy will come back into vogue and your, your work will be right back on par. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you mentioned a really important verb there that I, I, I want us to get back to that you've talked a lot with us, obviously not on this podcast, but <laughs> previous meetings together about this idea of contribution and how mm-hmm. youth contribute. Mm-hmm. And you know, we'll get into how belongingness is related to feeling purposeful and so forth. But this really seems like a critical element of helping youth start to like develop the roots of purposeful activity or purposeful direction. And I guess I'm just curious to start with, how do you think about contribution? Like, how would you conceptualize it? How do you define it? in your work as something that helps to promote positive youth development? Well, I think broadly it would be, are you able to give or provide resources or support in small ways or in large ways to those that you who are close to you or perhaps even those who are not close to you? And this could be from anything from just giving an ear to a friend who is in need to helping your family by cooking, cleaning, or even more substantially getting a job and contributing financially. It could be helping a team to achieve. It could be quite grand in terms of making an important statement or role in terms of sort of protesting against climate change or Mm -hmm. social justice, advocating for those kinds of things. But I think the idea of contribution, again, this is not new to me. A lot of people have been talking about this in a variety of ways, but I've been using the term a lot recently to try to bring all of those things collectively together that really what is really critically important is for adolescents to discover who they are and what place they play in the world. And one of the best ways to do that is to have an opportunity to make a difference in your group, in your community, or in your society. You learn about yourself, you learn about society, and there's a lot of win-wins when we look at psychological development, physical development, and health. Hmm. I love this definition. And it's so interesting in terms of something that we get a lot is 
how big does purpose have to be? Mm-hmm. Like thinking yeah. about the way we commonly define purpose as something that is a long-term, seemingly often lifelong aim that gives you this kind of direction, gives you this engagement with your life. We see a lot of people who talk to us about like, oh gosh, that's just a scary thing. Like That's too big. There's no way I can tell you what my purpose in life is. And as Tony and I have only half jokingly said before, like we're not exactly sure how we define purpose in life. But when we try to break it down to something smaller in some ways, like what is it that's guiding you from one day to the next? Like it doesn't have to be this huge big thing of like changing the whole world. It could be something as modest as like helping with your retirement community, helping with the people around you, helping your neighborhood, working in a lab, like helping with science. I think what I like about this discussion around contribution is exactly like you're saying, it's some way of contributing, but it doesn't have to be, if I have your take right, <laughs> it doesn't have to be something that is like changing climate change or stopping climate change. Yeah, well, I'd be interested in what you folks think of that in terms of what I've been talking about, because I do think it's intimidating to think that the only way you're going to make a difference is on the grand scale. And then when we talk about the importance of youth development and the importance of youth making a difference and having their voices heard, People will often talk about the Greta Thunbergs and other major Mm -hmm. socially known individuals. You know, that's quite grand. And anyone will look at those folks and say, I could just never be that. You know, and if that's what's purpose about, then then clearly I'm not going to get there. And I think we need to appreciate the small things that people do for one another. And in many Mm -hmm. ways, when we're thinking about scaffolding for youth, I don't know what you folks think, but you need to start somewhere. You need to start Mm -hmm. small. And those small things can really make a difference. If you play a role for your friend on a daily basis, then that's a great thing. You've made a difference. Mm-hmm. You've made a contribution. And I think it sort of is a way to hopefully, I don't know what you think. I keep saying this, what you think, but <laughs> recognize the humble ways that we all can make a difference and have a purpose in those that are close to us. What's so captivating about even the way you're framing this is Of course, we can point to the big contributions and through the grand scale of the acts that people are contributing. Those are pretty obvious to to us. But you're kind of opening a door, it seems, to almost look reflectively on the day that you've lived or week that you've lived and try to appreciate that maybe you have been contributing in small ways, ways that at the time you enacted that you may not have considered or deemed a contribution of sort, but it almost invites this sort of reframing of one sort of otherwise mundane activities as potentially being opportunities to contribute. And that could be interesting. And I wonder if there's any, I guess, either work inviting people to kind of recast or reflect on their day in that way, or if you see promise in future work about how that might be helpful to people to think about their lived lives not looking for the big shiny things, but even the mundane things as contributions. Ah, the importance of reflection, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's something that we underappreciate, particularly when we're thinking about youth development. So I'm struck by Mm -hmm. some work that has demonstrated that a lot of youth service programs, if they do not include reflection in them, Mm -hmm. don't do that much for kids. But when you include a way in which you can reflect, and that could be by journaling or talking as a group or 
think pair share whatever strategy you have that allows a group of youth to talk about what it means to them the impact that they've had upon their others that is perhaps the way that the juices flow from the impact of some sort of service activity or things that you do for one another and it's interesting i don't know what you folks think but i mean i wanted to ask you i mean how important is reflection for purpose can you have many reflections that sort of keep you going through the week like you talked about tony or do you mm-hmm. sort of need to have this grand coming to the mountain and thinking about the wise person and talking to the wise person and meditating for several days. Do we need to have that? Well, since you invoked a wise person, that's clearly a pat question. So let's <laughs> turn to the resident wise person. I really thought Tony was going to answer first. And I was going to be happy. <laughs> I think what's really interesting about this question, Andrew, at least to me, I'm going to take the easy way out and say it might have to be a little of both at times. That <laughs> You know, when we talk to individuals about the first steps along this kind of path to purpose, like those can be kind of daunting. And when, like with some of our studies of adolescence and and emerging young adults, like the initial exploration of what you want to do, what your direction should be is often anxiety producing. Like that purpose exploration piece does require that kind of scaffolding that you've talked about already. But I think along the way, like that's where some of those day-to-day reflections may come into play. Like there's a couple of models out there speaking to this idea that maybe we do this consciously or even kind of subconsciously that as we go through the day, we might do something and then get this positive sense, get this kind of sense that we were purposeful and directed, like this positive affect or this positive feedback from, you know, I come here and I record this podcast and I feel good afterwards, usually. And then we talk about it as something like, oh, maybe there's something about that podcast, something about this activity that really gets me excited, gets me focused on feeling like I'm making a difference or doing something. And that kind of momentary reflection could be critical for fine-tuning the purpose along the way, that you might need that kind of come to the big question moment early on, but hopefully that's not something that you need throughout. And I really like your point here about service learning and and the importance of service learning there, because I remember back when I was a grad student at Notre Dame, there were tons of service learning opportunities in which students would go from Notre Dame to lower SES environments, more impoverished environments, and come back almost like they've lost a piece of, like a lost of understanding, a loss of worldview, a loss of connection to their identity, in part because they've had this kind of changing experience, this experience that shook them from their Notre Dame worldview in some ways to realize what is needed or what kinds of things are needed by others out there. And if you don't have people reflect upon that, it could be this kind of negative identity experience. It could be something where you start to lose that commitment and start to feel less connected to the self, whereas it could also be this really powerful experience 
similar to how we talk about a reactive purpose, like your your purpose in life is reacting to this major event that you experienced in that it shapes your worldview and makes you see what is really needed. So I love your point here that in some ways, reflection is needed throughout. It just may take more macro, big picture <laughs> form early on. But even in these mundane day-to-day experiences, being able to reflect and say like, okay, doing the podcast led me to feel more purposeful than riding the train home from work. That says something about where my priorities lie and where my direction lies in some ways. Yeah, it's really interesting when you think about it. Yeah. You see, you give Pat a little runway, he, he really fills out the answer. That was I, a, I just keep th- talking until Tony interrupts me. And <laughs> hey, it was, it was, we follow. It was worth um, climb up the mountain, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, you know, I think it's spot on. There's for longstanding research on service learning or community-engaged learning, the reflection or critical reflection component it has truly emerged. There's evidence around the importance of that, that the same experiences without the chance to reflect just don't count the same. They don't have a stickiness to them. And there's something that, there's still work to be done in the reflection on an experience that has passed. And I think that's really telling. So I think you are both sort of really onto something there. And Andrew, you know, you invoked the notion of purpose in response to this idea of contribution. I keep alluding to sort of lay perspectives on these things, but I sometimes detect people tether those things, right? That when people think, particularly among youth contribution, they oftentimes are also talking about purpose. Is that true for you? When you think of contribution, you've certainly written about contribution, does that sit in proximity to the notion of purpose for you? I was waiting for that question, Tony. <laughs> good. We have talked about this a little bit. It's not to say I have a good answer for it. But I, I well, I'm ready. It has come in various forms from you as we've talked about this before. <laughs> I don't think they're one and the same. Okay. I think that contribution often will lead to purpose, but I don't okay. think that they're one and the same. You can explore different forms of contributions. An important aspect of adolescence that we should provide to them is a variety of these opportunities to contribute so that they can explore. It does not mean that they're going to get a sense of purpose from every Hmm. single one. What they settle on, or at least for that period of time, what they settle on probably would give them a sense of purpose and will lead to that. And it will often create a virtuous cycle by which Hmm. one will lead to the other. But I don't think they have to be one and the same. But let me throw it back to you. Can you have purpose <laughs> without contribution? I don't know if you're asking Pat or me, but I'm gonna. I'll I'm ask going you, to. Tony. You, okay, I'm okay. Gonna, okay. I'm going to the other mountain Man, now. I'm down. I'm on <laughs> Tony Mountain so, now. So, so Pat, what do you think from from this one mountain to the next? You know, gosh, you know, we've talked about this so much. I yeah. These are really good questions, and I think these are the kinds of questions that really await just better tests to tease apart. But you know, the point of the podcast is to try to explore them anyway. And my guess is yes. And here's what I mean by that. My guess mm-hmm. is that you could feel a sense of purpose without having yet made your contribution. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting there is it's possible that peer nomination, the world around you might see a lot of contributions that you're making. They might say, you know, this happens in peer nomination with purpose is people seemingly can detect in other people 
who has a sense of purpose, at least what we sort of crowdsource. Whereas the individual themselves may say, ah, I don't feel particularly purposeful. I certainly don't know what it is. I couldn't articulate that. Mm -hmm. So there must be some kind of purposeful enactments that the rest of us pick up on, though Mm -hmm. the agent or subject doesn't always feel that way. Mm -hmm. So my guess is there are people who also might feel a sense of purpose, but they may be waiting. They may be anticipating their moment to make a contribution. And in so doing could be a person who feels this sense profoundly, but doesn't feel yet that they made the contribution. But maybe I'm splitting a hair. I don't know. Maybe you'd have to kind of make many micro mundane contributions along the way. I don't know. What do you think, Pat? Do you think those are sort of sitting on top of each other, contribution and purpose, or can you see some space between them? I think it's a really good question for at least two or three reasons that two or three things come to mind when I consider this. One of which is, you know, starting off, you began by discussing belonging and making a contribution to your group. And I do think that we see variability in how much people connect their purpose to an outgroup or to a social collective, that you do find some individuals, and I'm not saying it's very many, but some do write purpose statements that seem not necessarily focused on making a contribution to others. And that's not to say that they're totally self-focused either, but it's just not the main thing that they're talking about per se. Mm -hmm. So I think one way of answering the question is Yes, there are people who write about their purpose without necessarily using the language of contribution, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another thing that came to mind as Tony was talking is thinking about there's a literature from health psychology that talks about this idea of invisible support, Mm -hmm. where you have individuals who actually feel better. Like there are times at which supporting someone without them knowing is the best way that you could support someone. That if you continue providing support for somebody, they may start to feel like they are burdened or something of that nature. And as Tony was talking about this idea where you could nominate people who are purposeful that they may not feel that way, you could also imagine cases where there's purposeful contributions being made that the recipients aren't necessarily aware of. So there's Mm -hmm. kind of turning Mm -hmm. the question on its head a bit. You could imagine cases where somebody feels like they are contributing, and maybe they are, but they are not getting that recognized by others. And and what does that mean for them continuing (laughs) to make contribution part of their purpose? Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting question then. So is contribution established when a person believes they've made one or when a beneficiary can affirm or validate that it's been made. And Andrew, do you have a take on that? Do you have a view that contribution is sort of a subjective experience of having made one or does it take a behavioral evidence that it's been enacted? You mean a behavioral evidence that it's been recognized by others? Recognized, yes. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. And that's what's really interesting. Yeah, and that's wow. I'm trying to put this all in sort of a youth development and yeah, developmental sure. perspective, right? And I think would you let's just imagine that you have a yearning to make a difference or a purpose. And certainly this comes from all the narrative work on purpose during adolescence, right? 
but they're looking for ways to do it. And so you could have this idea that you want to make a difference, you want a purpose, but you haven't had a chance to try it out. So then you start trying out, you do certain things. But in the beginning, you're not going to know whether or not you've made a difference or not. Probably if you're young, you're not going to know that unless people recognize it or you see a real impact. But then over time, over time, you if you've reflected upon it, if you've had enough of an experience, then you get those goodies, that recognition yourself. You're able to derive that sense of meaning from that particular activity because you have a history and you know over time that it has made a difference. This makes me think, you know, guys, the way I got into this is really when we were doing a lot of work on adolescence assistance to the family among immigrant families. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what was striking about it without getting into the details is the routinization of these activities. So that's really jargonish way to saying, hey, you just did it because it's what you did as being part of the family. Mm -hmm. Sometimes mm -hmm. you recognize, sometimes you're not. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're asked, but preferably you're not asked to do it a lot. But it's such an embedded part of that unit's, that family unit's activities that you know you make a difference. You don't need people to tell you that you're making a difference on a daily basis because you see the impact. <laughs> you don't need to be asked. And when we think about developmentally, what kinds of settings we're trying to create for youth, ideally, we are creating those kinds of settings. You know, we learned so much by studying the immigrant families over the years and what they brought to bear for their children and what mm -hmm. we can learn from them for other families. And Absolutely. Me, that was just one striking example. That's just so interesting because there's a parallel through line in the purpose literature. When I think about those scholars who think of purpose as sort of this self-transcendent contribution. So Bill Damon and Kendall Cotton Bronk and Jenny Menon who would say, well, purpose is a, a broad intention to accomplish something that's meaningful to you, but of consequence to the world beyond you. I'm paraphrasing. But if that's the notion, then it certainly seems like you could think about it's an intentionality to do something that's making a contribution that's of significance. It matters to people. And that's where it gets so fascinating to me is we might tend to think of big scale. I did something that really changed the nature of the course of things. But the notion that you can also find that in the routinization or the mundane, for lack of a better word, but just sort of the day-to-day -day activities of a household sort of system. And mm -hmm. I, I have an intention to contribute to that might be tethered to this notion of feeling purposeful. That's just a really interesting connection. Well, I think it just tells us we need to be paying a lot more attention to these right. details of their daily activities. So let's think of peer groups and peer interactions among friends. You know, the quote, just hanging out, not doing anything productive, blah, blah, blah. If you look very closely, there's so much work being done within that group, subtle ways in which people are being acknowledged, the way they assist one another in very subtle ways. These are very very important cues that they're always looking for and they're always reading. But, you know, it's not going to show up on a questionnaire. <laughs> An adult right. observer is not necessarily going to pay attention to it if they've developed their coding scheme just upon their own traditional ways of thinking about it. But the exquisiteness with which the developing adolescent brain is attuned to social cues and the ways in which they can make a difference with their friends and whether they're being subtly acknowledged or not is something that we really need to be be paying a lot more attention to. That's such a great point of thinking about the importance of the perceiver. Like this is something Tony and I come across a lot in terms of how you define purpose really 
places the focus on whether it's the researcher <laughs> that is mm-hmm. the one defining whether you have a purpose or whether the person is defining mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. they have a purpose. And we see such a difference of opinion at times when it comes to adolescence, where some coding schemes, like you're saying, it's kind of the adult is placing these criteria as to if you don't have X, Y, and Z, you're not going to be scored as purposeful, Mm -hmm. but it may not take into account how the adolescent experiences their own environment and their own sense of purpose. And and I remember one of the studies I always love to go back to is a study from about a decade ago where people were asking adolescents about like, what are pro-social behaviors? Like just actually asking for their opinion Whereas we've got all these inventories of like, well, pro-sociality is helping others, volunteering, and so forth. And one of the biggest indicators of pro-sociality was laughing at each other's jokes and providing that outlet for humor. And I was like, that makes so much sense to me. (laughs) But it's something that we never really think about as researchers because we're not taking their perspective. We're taking our perspective, employing it. And I think it's a really interesting point when it comes to adolescent purpose, because to something Tony was saying, there's a huge difference as to whether we as researchers are the ones getting to define, like, did you make or are you making a contribution to people beyond yourself versus if they believe that they are making this contribution, making a difference to others may not be as visible to us as adults. And like, how do you try to address that, I guess, in some of your contribution and and belongingness work? Do we have to focus solely on the adolescent perspective? Or how do we deal with this kind of obstacle of differing opinions at times? (laughs) That's a great question. I mean, you know, when we first did our work on family assistance, In immigrant families, for example, we did spend a lot of time doing some focus groups and interview work with adolescents to try to get it a variety of ways that they feel that they do help the family and sort of try to create some kinds of instruments where we can, they can report a variety of different kinds of activities. So that was one way that we did it. What is striking about some of these things from the routinization standpoint is that it is so routinized in a part of daily life, you don't talk about it. Yeah. Right? It's just, of course you do this. And it was striking to me when we were talking to these youth way back when, and so this was what, 20 years ago we first started doing this work, a lot of the times it just came out as the conversation went, went on. We didn't know what we were asking for. We just kept talking and talking. And at some point, for example, like, well, of course I'm going to do that because I'm part of the family. And so for some of us who are from a different cultural background, the idea that you'd be cooking for the family almost on a daily basis, you know, that would be notable. You would talk about it. You would make mm-hmm. it, you draw a lot of attention to it. Maybe you would, <laughs> some families you would demand payment for it, but it was such a expected part of what you do. So it was just sort of spending time and listening to what they had to say. You know, this is where I sort of need to, acknowledge wise man number two on the mountain in Ithaca, because when I was writing a paper on whether or not adolescents were getting different opportunities to contribute, and whether we were denying some of them the opportunities to contribute, wise man number two, which he signed his review, which was I was very grateful for. I forget which one it was, Tony, now, but I think it was one of those. 
And he said, look, you know, let's pay attention to this. You know, maybe we should be paying more attention to kids from marginalized backgrounds. What do they think that they're doing? How are they making a contribution? So it's one thing to say that society is denying them the opportunity to contribute. That's completely true in a lot of ways, but they, you know, they're finding other ways to do it and we need to pay better attention to it. There's several wise people in Ithaca. Somebody may have forged my signature on a review. I'm not, there's no telling. You know, speaking of this point, I mean, earlier in your in sharing your thoughts, you talked about the kinds of environments that we likely want to scaffold for young people to contribute yeah. and talked about youth living in immigrant families and youth who may be otherwise marginalized. So what do you think about what features must we consider when we're trying to build environment or grow the kinds of features within environments that are favorable for youth contribution or purpose or whatever you might, or sense of belonging? Are there some sort of obvious things that probably are characteristically true of environments that are likely to beget these kinds of experiences for young people? Time. Now, I'm just throwing that out Mm. there because when we did a meet and greet with some school leaders um, in the middle of the pandemic, and one of the principals said, you know what I just need most of all is time. Time to spend time with my youth, to talk to them, to think about the opportunities we can provide to them. So one thing is that I don't think we can rush this. And what I mean by that is, you know, in a very classic scaffolding kind of way, we need to provide some structure of and resources and support for youth, depending upon their age, give them a setting in which they can think about what they want to do give them the opportunities to learn, give them some training. Maybe they're learning a new activity or they're learning how to work with the elderly, for example. So they need some support there, but they need time and space to explore the ways in which they can perhaps do it a little bit more creatively or make it true for themselves and to talk with the supporters of that activity, whether they be adults or or what have you. And I just threw that out there right from the get-go, Tony, because I think that a lot of what we know about these settings we kind of know already about how to scaffold, mm-hmm. but we need to make sure that there's time to process, not hmm. to rush it, to move it along. Because for you to get that spark yourself, you need time. You need to be able to do the activity. You may have a bad day on Monday, and the only time you're able to engage in, say, this particular activity is once a week. So it may mm-hmm. take four weeks, five weeks for that spark to hit. I love this point, and it came up in a different form in some in one of our previous interviews with this notion of how frequently we are asking youth like what do you want to do with your life or what do you yeah. want to like what do you want to be like it's just as we've spent this entire episode say like we shouldn't be too focused on the big bold thing and, <laughs> and noticing the small thing it's exactly the opposite of how we usually talk <laughs> to youth yeah. in terms right. of what do you want to do? Do you not know yet? Why don't you know yet? Like you should have your major figured out before you get to college and everything. And I love this idea that it resonates so well with some of the previous discussions on this podcast Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. the importance of giving space, giving time, allowing again for reflection rather than rushing everybody to make these kinds of identity commitments, to make these purpose commitments and I think it's, it's of course, tricky because on the other hand, we're funding programs for a certain amount of time. Yeah. <laughs> People right. like adults are being dedicating certain number of hours to trying to, to make these differences. 
So how do you reconcile the fact that we have one group very focused on time and then the other group needs more time, I, I think is kind of a tricky thing. But I don't know how to solve that. But I think it's a really interesting point about giving people time. Yeah, it really is. It really is. I'm just still a little sort of amazed by that, the simplicity of your response, Andrew, and yet just how intricate it would be to find that and to create the space for more time in a world that seems to be heading in the other direction, sort of sprinting to kind of fitting more and more things in. And so you, as you said, we may have stumbled across some things that actually work, but when, if you conjure the notion of time, are you going to actually do them? It just rings true with me, even anecdotally, just thinking of the school structures these days. It's like you almost have a hard time interjecting any new programming into the school day. It just seems to be a a moment of youth attention. It's just class after class, experience after experience. But the things that we know could actually make a difference, there's no room anymore. There's no time for actually for doing some of those things. And so it's sort of a sad commentary on on a a simple thing that could be very helpful. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And whenever you talk to anyone who works with youth on a day-to-day basis, whether they're That's teacher right. or after school, because it's exactly what they will say, I'd love to do it, but I have to do it. Mm-hmm. That is a bigger picture question. I think it is worth asking ourselves if we have just not allowed youth and ourselves the time to scaffold them, to explore, to figure out the way that can make a difference in the world. And I think it's important to underline that when we say time, I think what we're all saying is it's not that we mean that someone should be having time to sit back and not doing anything or committing to anything. That's not at all. In fact, I think what we're saying is that we need time to do different kinds of things, to have different Mm -hmm. opportunities, to have the time to reflect, of course. But it does not mean that you don't do the hard work that we need to do as we make the transition to adulthood. You know, it makes me think of some older work that Reed Larson had done on the importance of alone time. Absolutely. That came to mind for me as well. Yep. And how it was really important for all of us, but particularly for developing youth, to have some time alone. And how it can run counterintuitive because you may be measuring something like how positive you feel. And when you're alone, you may not feel, particularly young people, may not feel as good when they're alone as when they're with friends. But boy, does that alone time mm-hmm. matter to having had that. And, and to, just to affirm and double down on your point about how to use that time. I mean, some of the science on reflection suggests that it reflection isn't, you know, sitting as Pat might on a mountaintop reflecting. It could actually be very active. You know, reflection can be collaborative. It could be the think pair share. Yeah. It can be jotting things Absolutely. down with a captive audience. And, yeah. and so there's a lot of ways to extract the things that young people would do with that time. It can be very active, even if it's, you know, not always on to the next thing. That's right. Let me ask one sort of question to kind of really pick your brain is when you think about the body of research that these concepts sort of are embedded in, so whether it's belongingness, contribution, purpose, and so the things that those things touch upon, is there a piece of evidence, a kind of a study, a kind of, I don't know, conclusion that we're waiting on that you have sort of at the tip of the tongue, you'd say, you know, if only we knew more about this, then the world would turn the corner and things would be better. You think about this research enterprise that we're all invested in. Is there an area that you think is sort of the, you gaze the, over the heat map of questions and kinds of data that we would might want to collect? 
Is there something that really captures your attention? Do you think, you know, that is the area, that is the concept, that is the thing. If we knew more about things would make a real difference from where we are now? Small, smart ways that we can promote this in the lives of youth. Hmm. Not just grand intervention programs, not just large prevention programs, which are important, not just majorly time-intensive service learning programs, which again are important, but what are the smaller everyday ways that we can embed in the daily lives of youth? How can we fit them in there and support that in ways that are probably not going to be all that expensive? are not going to necessarily mm-hmm. be require a large infrastructure of a prevention team or an intervention team, but better understanding of these small ways that we can promote a sense of contribution and exploration of purpose mm-hmm. and what it means to you in their daily life. I mean, I don't know how you possibly conjured a succinct answer to a question that I thought would stump you. That is, <laughs> that was no, fantastic. For you, <laughs> I absolutely love that because it feels actionable. It feels achievable. And the sharp edge of the question, it points us in a direction of really how to focus our attention and our, our own limited resources of what kinds of things to focus on. So I really appreciate that. I love this idea though, in terms of, you know, we have seen this at the university level a bit more where we get asked by our school and other schools, like what's something a professor could do to help their students find a purpose? And it's such a big, bold, of course, question, like we keep saying, but it's some of the little things about like these reflection activities or being able to like take time out to have this discussion, I, I think it's kind of an interesting place to start with what you're talking about, Andrew, because I know Tony and I have discussed this a few times before, but there really isn't even a discussion about purpose in a lot of our domains of life. So these small, tangible things that we could do It seems like the first thing that we need to do in some ways is to have a talk or to be able to voice these ideas about like, what is contribution? What is purpose? Why is that not something that comes up more frequently? Whereas I think every conversation with my family is usually centered on weather, sports, and (laughs) weather during sporting events. So... (laughs) Why is there not a conversation in other domains of our lives around purpose or contribution? And I guess related to that, one way that contribution might be a little different from purpose is it seems like it might be an easier thing to get people to latch onto to start talking about. It doesn't maybe have as much of the existential dread (laughs) that we sometimes get with purpose. I don't know if that's been your experience with talking with people or... I'll give you one concrete example of that. So I teach a class to undergraduates here at UCLA. It's a problem-based learning class where you just sort of just present them a problem and they need to sort of do research on how to solve it. And it has to do with behavioral health and mental health primarily. And so we spend a couple of weeks talking about the idea of academic pressure in secondary schools and how they may impact physical and mental health. So I had to do a lot of work Mm. on that. What proceeded from that was a lot of discussion of the different kinds of stressors that 
that high schoolers will experience. And what was striking, what one day took over the conversation was this idea of the pressure to figure out your passion. And if I don't know my passion now, then I'm behind the race. And it was so palpable to hear these students talk about this. And they see it on social media and they hear it from other folks that you need to figure out your perfect path in life, exactly what you want to do now, and so on, that it was such a retrospectively stressful thing for them even to think about. They were maybe one or two years beyond high school. That it was, Mm -hmm. I will always remember that moment. It just bubbled up. They talked about it quite eloquently. And what you had just said, Patrick, makes me think of like, what can we do to dial it down a little bit? And Mm -hmm. what can we do to have these smaller ways that you think about what you want to do, think about what you want to do for the next few years. You need to be thinking about your future when you're thinking about high school, but think about the next few years. What are you going to do? Recognize the idea that perhaps what you're going to do the next 10 years isn't going to be the next 20 or 30, but that's not the narrative that they're hearing. And so mm-hmm. I, I think maybe on the one sense, there's not enough discussion or reflection of what this means to you, like you said, Patrick, but out there is a lot of drumbeat about find your passion. And I think a lot of youth are finding that very intimidating. It feels daunting to think about the nudge to find your purpose, one, in the relative absence of environments that might be supportive of that. And so your heart breaks for young people who are sort of thinking that they're behind in any way because many adults don't know and yet they're faring well. So it doesn't seem to be a requirement to be able to articulate it in your teens what your purpose is. But even among those who feel purposeful, they may score highly on a sense, a measure of sense of purpose, but can't quite articulate it to your point of sort of everyday practical ways of engaging with this. That seems like I would add that to the list then is programs or supports for even practicing articulating what a purpose might be. And it's not a big, you know, not a lot on the line, but just what kinds of words might be added to that list? What are some values? What are some directions you might move towards? We don't have enough environmental sort of precursors for at least gearing up for that big moment when you're asked the big question. And I can see how that could just be overwhelming to people, unfortunately so. Yeah, exactly. And I do think these Obviously, we're talking about multiple factors to dial it down and allow people to do this important developmental work. But, you know, it makes me think of the work that David Yeager and others have done about when you just prime people of the reason why they're doing something, the larger reason that they're trying to get a college education or whatever, it can help you to get over the humps. But a lot of times we put our youth on a treadmill in secondary school and in college, and we don't allow them that step back of like, why? And they will rightfully ask, why am I doing this? Tony and I ask that every episode. Why are we doing this? <laughs> we do. And yet we keep going. So yeah. for good reason. Well, because you reflect probably. Yeah, it's probably the case. Yeah. I think Andrew's just solved the entire podcast. Right? <laughs> this is just Tony and I reflecting on a bi-weekly basis. <laughs> it really is, Pat. That's what this is. Well... With that, I wish we could keep you around. We'll have you do all season three as well while we're at it. But yeah. uh, we're just having an entire season with Andrew. I think that's a great idea. Oh, I love to talk to you two wise men. I, I really always <laughs> learn a lot when I talk to you folks. And it's always a stimulating conversation. Yes, we've benefited way more, I promise. <laughs> Clearly. 
This is a lot of fun. And thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you to the audience. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as Tony and I have. And we'll see you again next time on Your Direction. See you next time.